which is what this is, a record of. But I will back up to verse 22 of Acts 2. And just again, the text is from verse 37 to verse 39. But uh, actually, I'll read 41. But we'll start in verse 22. This is the word of God. It contains no errors in the original languages in which it was given. And we have the promise in faithful translations of the original languages that this remains to us, the authoritative word of God. In other words, he is the one who speaks as I read. So listen reverently to it. Again, this is in the middle of Peter's Pentecost sermon. He's just quoted from Joel's prophecy and said, this has been fulfilled in our day by the outpouring of the uh, miraculous gifts on the church. And he says, on yeah, believers, and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, referring to the Romans, and put him to death. But he he blames the the Jewish people uh, who were not believers uh, there. It goes on. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him... I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. And there's the end of the Old Testament quote from Psalm 16. And then Peter continues, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, meaning David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. From Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, or Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now here's the text for today. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? 
Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are, called, or who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, meaning to the church, added to the church. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it has everything that we need for life, uh, not just eternal life, but abundant life in this world and uh, godliness. Lord, we ask that you would uh, that you would bless the preaching, that you, as you promised Jesus, would preach through uh, your instrument, a sinner, myself. Would you please speak to us uh, authoritatively, and would you please... Um, Teach us uh, what we need from this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um, <clears throat> where are all the kids? All the kids looking up here? All right, very good. Yeah. Uh, kids, when a person, maybe yourself or somebody, oh, somebody else that you know, when a person owns something, it belongs to that person, belongs to you or another person, um, it's common for people... Uh, at least some, some of the time, to put their names on something they own. Perhaps you've done this. Perhaps you got a book from somebody. Maybe it was even a Bible from your parents or a grandparent. Um, and you put your name, or if you couldn't write it yourself, you had your mom or your dad put your name in the front of that uh, Bible. Or maybe it was another book that you got from somebody. Or maybe it was something else. Maybe it was a bike and you actually wrote your name on a piece of tape and stuck it on the bike so in case you left your bike somewhere, uh, somebody could return it to you. Um, the point is, uh, we tend to do this, uh, put our names on things uh, that uh, belong to us. And the, when our name is on something, like, our, like a book, say, um, it's a sign to other people that that thing that we have our name on belongs to us. Well, guess what? God does this as well. He puts his name, God the Son, actually, Jesus, puts his name not on things, but on people. And the name that he puts on people is a sign of his ownership of those people he puts his name on. And you know what it is that he puts his name uh, what it is that puts his name on people? Their baptism. The act of being baptized. We forget this all too often in the modern church, but baptism is not just something that we or our parents do, in the case of parents having their uh, small children baptized, but it's, more importantly, it's something that God the Son does. He is doing something when a person is baptized. He is putting his mark on that person and saying, this person is mine by way of covenant. 
And you children, when you observe this, uh, when you observe Adam getting a little water put on him, know that that's what God is doing. God is saying to Adam, you're mine. And he's telling everybody else the same thing. And I'll explain what that means a little bit uh, later on. The context of this uh, passage, and again, we're just looking at 35 through 41 here of Acts chapter 2, but the context is the Pentecost sermon. And prior to the Pentecost sermon that Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit has just been poured out in a, in a, uh, in a redemptive historical way, in a new way uh, that uh, has not been seen before prior to this uh, time. And Joel prophesied that it was going to happen, and it indeed happens on the day of Pentecost. And after the Pentecost experience, when all the, the Jewish people see believers uh, uh, speaking in tongues that they recognize from the various parts of the Roman Empire from which they've come to celebrate uh, the feast of Passover, they're like, wait a minute, these people are speaking, these are Jewish people, and they're speaking in my native language back in my country. And they're not from my country. And it's miraculous, of course. And they're speaking the great things about the great things of God, particularly, obviously, in the in, in the in the work of Jesus and His resurrection and uh, His salvation that He brings to those who will believe in Him. So Peter has preached his uh, sermon, and in the midst of preaching the sermon, he is interpreting what has just happened—the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament age—and what Peter said in this sermon. It not only persuaded many or most of his Jewish hearers, who were not believers, by the way, prior to this point in time, he not only persuades most of his hearers' minds that what he said is true, that Jesus is in fact who he said he was, but he also has convinced, convicted, or the God has through Peter's sermon, convicted their consciences of their sin in bringing about or helping to bring about the death of the covenant mediator, the Messiah, Jesus. And we read that in verse 7. They were pierced to the heart, uh, Luke tells us in verse 37. If, and they realize this, if Jesus is indeed, and he is, we, we believe Peter from what he's been telling us, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, uh, the anointed one of God, the promised Davidic king who would save his people from their sins, uh, then no guilt could be greater than the guilt of treating Jesus the way we, the, believe, the unbelievers who are listening to Peter's Pentecost sermon, the way we have treated him. We helped get him killed. We said crucify him. Kill him. And since they had refused him, Jesus, in whom all their hope of salvation rested, what hope of Escaping God's judgment was there for them, they thought, because we got him killed by our cries that he should be crucified when we were given the chance chance uh, to uh, save him. Is there any hope left? The answer is found in, Peter's answer is found in verses 38 and 39, where he says, and Peter said to them after they said, what shall we do? He said, repent. You need to repent of what you did. And then you need to let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And you should receive the gift of the Holy Spirit through conversion. That's what he's talking about. And then he says, for, and here he gives the reason why they can uh, hope that uh, God will forgive them. For the promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. From Peter's answer here, uh, verses 39 and 38 uh, and 39 in particular, which is what we're going to focus on the remainder of the sermon, we learn some really important truths, two in particular, about the sacrament or the holy ordinance, if you don't like the word sacrament. We, we aren't afraid of that term in Presbyterian circles, but the holy ordinance of baptism. Two things that I'm going to highlight from this text. First is this, because the Abrahamic and the new covenants are essentially the same gracious covenant, you need to be baptized if you're a Christian. You need to be baptized if you're a Christian, or professing to be a Christian. But secondly, because the Abrahamic and new covenants are essentially the same gracious covenant, you need to have your children baptized if you are a Christian. So first, because the Abrahamic and New Covenants are essentially the same covenant, you need to be baptized if you yourself are a professing Christian. I want to talk about the first part of that point, uh, because the Abrahamic and New Covenants are essentially the same covenant. What Peter is doing here in verse 39, when he says, For the promise is for you and your children, that is almost a direct quote it is a direct quote, really, by God when he was giving Abraham this covenant that is uh, first uh, initiated in uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, and then it is reiterated in chapter 15, and then it is um, confirmed in chapter 17. And in, in that Abrahamic covenant, God said, I, um, I will be, uh, the promise is for you, and for your children. And in other words, what he's doing here in the New Covenant, because we're in the New Covenant age here, right? And this is, this is the New Covenant that he's, he's, he's talking about, uh, that Peter is talking about. He's essentially saying, he's referencing the Abrahamic Covenant, and he's indicating that the New Covenant is at least in its essence the same as the Abrahamic Covenant that God made 2,000 years earlier with the patriarch Abraham and also reiterated to his sons Isaac and Jacob. And he's saying, if you will do what I tell you to do, if you, because they ask, what should we do? And that's essentially equivalent to what they're saying is, what should we do to be saved from God's wrath? Which is the same question which the Philippian jailer asked, right? In Acts chapter 16, verse 30. Uh, they're asking, what do we do to avoid being judged for the wickedness that we've exhibited? ourselves, he's telling them, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And what he essentially says is, you need to be saved. You need to be um, saved from that wrath of God by, and I'm going to tell you what it means, by becoming a Christian. Okay? So, he asked this question, what, they ask, what do we do? In other words, what do we do to be, to be saved? Same question asked by the Philippian jailer. What do we need to be do to be saved from God's wrath? Well, what is a Christian? A Christian is often referred to as somebody who is saved. Now, that's, that's 
That is uh, religious lingo that we use. Uh, I wouldn't suggest using that when you're talking to your non-Christian friends. You want to talk about being a Christian um, or trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord uh, rather than using the word saved. But, but it is true that a Christian is somebody who is saved. Specifically, someone who has been saved from the infinite justice of God that would otherwise they would otherwise receive in hell, which we all deserve, by the way. Every last one of us in this world deserves. It's to be saved from the infinite justice of God in hell, but it's also to be saved not only from that, but saved unto the infinite blessedness of God in heaven, ultimately. It's both things. Saved from one thing, from hell, God's wrath in hell, and saved unto another thing, God's blessings, uh, eternal blessings in heaven. A Christian can be described that way. A Christian is also one who repents uh, ongoingly of his or her sin. Jesus, Peter said, rather to the, uh, when they said, what should we do? He said, repent. You need to repent. This doctrine that is going around in the uh, modern church, particularly in this country, that says all you need to do is intellectually assent to a set of facts and you're a Christian. I just believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I'm good. I can live any way I want to live. I can, I can do anything I want to do. I'm going to heaven because I believe those facts. The demons believe. Those very same facts. The devil himself believes those very same facts and you know exactly what their uh, eternal situation is. No. One believes, for sure, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but one who believes repents. Repents of his waywardness, of his rebellion against God, of her uh, love of self, of her self-idolatry. He or she repents when they become, when a person becomes a Christian. Which is what Peter's describing in verse 38. So if you're a Christian, you're somebody who is not walking in sin anymore. Now you struggle with it. I struggle with it. I struggled with it this week. We all did. But we don't walk in it. We don't practice it. We, we are desirous of walking obediently, uh, even though we fall in the process of trying to walk with Jesus. With God. We are, to, we are people who have ex, ex display repentance. Repentance means being sorry. Starts out with sorrow for having dishonored God for our, because of our, on account of our rebellion against Him. It also involves about face with respect to sin and about face with respect to God. The, the about face with respect to sin, as I've already indicated, is a intention to turn away from that sin. I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to say these things. I do want to do these things and say these things and think this way rather than that way. Uh, so we deliberate choice to uh, abandon our sinful lifestyle. And true repentance also doesn't about face with respect to God. We turn to God and we say, and Jesus in particular, and we say, Jesus, or at least uh, think this way, I want you as my Lord. That's my master, my king. You tell me what to do. I'm your slave. Yes, salvation is, when we trust in Jesus savingly, we trust him as Savior and Lord. 
A Christian is also one who not only repents and is saved from God's uh, uh, from hell and saved unto blessedness in heaven, but a Christian is also, verse 41 of our text tells us, is someone who receives the word. Verse 41, So then those who had received his word, his words, meaning his, his message, Peter's message, were baptized. Because they were Christians. Professing Christians, at least. What does it mean to receive the word? That Peter is, uh, the, the word was the gospel. Peter was preaching the gospel. And so when you receive the word, you are embracing the, as true, the message that you have heard, the message that Peter preached, the message that, um, all evangelical ministers preach from their pulpit and that you hopefully share with people that you encounter in your everyday life as the Lord provides you with opportunity. It's the gospel. That God in Christ reconciles believers in Christ to himself. That Christ himself has satisfied God's infinite wrath against our sins uh, as believers by Jesus' uh, sacrifice of himself. He was, he, um, he satisfied that, uh, that wrath against our sin by Jesus offering up his life uh, as a sacrifice for sin. And also it believes and embraces the truth that Jesus merited God's favor, his grace, for those of us who are trusting in Christ by his perfectly obedient life. That's what it means to receive the word. And one who receives the word is one, uh, is one, excuse me, one receives the word when one the one who the message is about, there we go, is received. To as many as received him, to them I gave, he gave uh, uh, the right to become children of God. Called children of God. So a Christian is one who receives the gospel and receives him who the gospel is all about. And that's Jesus. A Christian is one, fundamentally, who is trusting in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who is 100% God and is 100% man, and is the only way to be forgiven by God and avoid going to hell, trusting in that Jesus alone, nothing else. Not our baptism, not our church membership, not our good works, not our family pedigree, whatever. Nothing. Trust in Jesus alone to be forgiven and rec- by God and reconciled to God. That is what a Christian is. All these things that describe a Christian. Do these things describe you? Do they describe you? Those of you who are listening from afar, does that describe you? Are you somebody who has repented of your sins? Are you somebody who has received the gospel as the truth? Are you somebody who is trusting, actively, personally trusting in Jesus alone to save you from your sins, which would otherwise land you in hell for eternity? Are you trusting in Him? If you are not, do so now. Well, you still have a chance. The opportunity, I should say. Now let's get back to baptism. Why does a Christian, who I just defined and described there, why does a Christian need to be baptized? Well, for two reasons. One is the Lord commands it, I'll get to that in a moment, but the second is, really the first, is because the new covenant that uh, is found in the New Testament, from which we are reading, the new covenant is essentially the same covenant in its essence as the covenant that God made with Abraham, as evidenced by Peter's reiteration of a uh, of a phrase from the Abrahamic covenant in John uh, in Genesis 17, 
the new covenant, if you if we can put it this way, is a republishing of the Abrahamic covenant, but in a fuller, richer form, if I can put it that way. But it's essentially the same covenant. And since the two covenants are really two versions, two administrations of the one covenant of grace that was originally uh, uh, announced back in the garden after the fall in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman. Since those two, these two versions, the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are essentially the same, uh, two versions of the one gracious covenant, then the parties, this is important, the parties to these covenants must be the same. Otherwise, it's not essentially the same covenant. What are those parties? What were the parties to the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham and his children. The believing believing Abraham and his children. By the way, the, the girls were included in that even though they didn't receive the covenant sign. New Testament uh, points to that with respect to baptism applies to them as well. Circumcision was the sign of participation in the Abrahamic covenant. It was a bloody sign pointing forward to the need for blood to, uh, to bring it... Uh, uh, to fruition. Baptism is the sign of participation in the new covenant. Paul equates the two signs and their meaning in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 11 and 12. Colossians chapter 2, we won't turn there now, but they, they mean the same. They signify and sign the same realities, spiritual realities. And there, what, what, what are those, uh, what do they signify? They're signs, and we're talking about baptism rather than circumcision, although it applies to circumcision. They're signs of the blessings promised in the gracious covenant that God has made. And because the sign, they're a sign of participation in that covenant relationship with God, they are also signs of membership in the covenant community, which is the visible church. Look around you. That's the visible church. And everybody else who's gathering for worship uh, uh, to worship the Lord and call on his name in this world is the visible church. And the, the covenant sign is sign of membership in, participation in that covenant and sign of membership in the community in which that covenant is being worked out. So, that's why, because the Abrahamic covenant said you apply the sign to believers and their children, um, and the new covenant is the same, essentially, as the uh, Abrahamic covenant, and also God commands it, and he commands it right here through Peter's words. Uh, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, and I'm going to explain that for in a little bit, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are a member of the community in which the covenant is being worked out, that is the visible church, if you are either a member of that community by professing faith in Christ or by being a child of of such a person, meaning a believer, then you are required to receive the sign and seal, it is a sign and a seal, of your participation in the covenant. 
and of membership in the covenant community, the, the church. And 41, verse 41 makes that point. And then those who had received the word, implied to that as believed, uh, what Paul, uh, Peter was saying, that Jesus was their only hope of being forgiven, those who had received the word were baptized. Pointing to the requirement of baptism. If you're a Christian, you need to be baptized. So, let me get into this now. What is the relationship between salvation, but really I'm talking more about justification, than salvation can be applied to not only justification, but also uh, glorification in heaven. And we're talking about justification here. Um, what is the relationship between justification and baptism? <clears throat> First of all, let me just define justification. <clears throat> Excuse me. Justification is two things. It's pardon of your sins, and it's a declaration from God that you are righteous in his sight. Not because you are, but because Jesus is perfectly righteous, and his righteousness has been credited to you if you have believed in him to save you. And you are declared righteous, and you are pardoned of your sin. That's what it means to be justified. That's what people normally refer to as being saved. I was saved when I was 15 years old. They mean I was justified. Uh, but very oftentimes, the language that's used in Scripture is uh, is the word saved, sozo in the Greek. But um, it's, re- it's referring to that point of justification um, when you b- first believed on Christ. So, what's the relationship between justification and baptism? Well, some religious groups teach that you must be baptized to be justified slash saved. They believe and say and teach that it is not enough to rest by faith solely in Jesus' finished work. Of for rendered for sinners. It's not enough to believe in Jesus, in other words, is what these, these groups say. They claim that it is only when a person is baptized that his sins are actually washed away. That is not the gospel. That is a false gospel. Verse 38 of our text, is one of the texts that those folks who say, you got to be baptized to be saved, be justified, they mean, they use Acts 38, uh, 2.38 as one of the texts to defend their view. Now, <clears throat> I'll read it again. Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On a quick read, folks, <clears throat> excuse me. Thanks to my wife, she bought these this week for me. <clears throat> On a quick read, it might sound, when I read that, it might sound as if it is teaching that baptism is actually necessary in order to be forgiven by God. Okay? On a quick read, it might seem to be teaching that. But a more careful reading of the passage in its context yields a much different conclusion than that. And what is that conclusion? That baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant and the spiritual blessings promised in that covenant. It is a sign and seal of the covenant and the spiritual blessings promised by that covenant. It points to the spiritual union with Christ, the, the sign does, the baptism, our spiritual union with Christ 
and purification from sin's stain that every person who puts his trust in the Lord Jesus enjoys. Not every baptized person puts his trust in the Lord Jesus, but it is a sign of those of that spiritual union and that purification, that forgiveness. That the one who trusts in Christ, trusts in the promises of God and the covenant, receives. Baptism confirms also the trustworthiness of God's promise made in the covenant and its various administrations to be our God and for that we are in fact his people, to make us his people. It is a sign and a seal of that, or confirmation of that uh, promise that God, for those with whom he is in covenant, he is their God and they are his people. <clears throat> And it is one of a couple of different means or instruments that God uses, baptism is, to sanctify those who are already believers at the time of their baptism. And God can also use, uh, 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 when, when a baptism takes place, likewise with the Lord's Supper, God can use that sacrament if an unbeliever is watching it to see, oh, I need to be cleansed with wa- with spiritual water and have my sins washed away by Jesus. And this, this sacrament points me to that. So God can use, in other words, as a way to bring a person to Christ. Uh, it's a good preaching tool, if you will, uh, observing the sacrament. But, but he uses it to sanctify those who are already believing in him. This is what the Westminster Divines were thinking of when they spoke of improving on one's baptism. I'm going to read that to you. In Larger Catechism 167, it speaks of uh, this uh, uh, concept of improving upon one's baptism. We don't talk that way anymore, but the, uh, the uh, uh, Christians in the 16th century certainly did. And so let me read this to you. How is baptism, and you can follow if you like, in the uh, back of your Psalter hymnal is the Larger Catechism. Larger Catechism 167. How is our baptism to be improved by us. So, if you've already been baptized, listen carefully. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it, of baptism, to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, meaning baptism, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow therein made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilements, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other benefits sealed to us in that sacrament. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortification of sin, excuse me, for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace and by endeavoring to live by faith to have our conversion, excuse me, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. I know that's a lot, what I just read, but I my point is, there's more to baptism than just happens when you get baptized. And you ought to look into it if you're a believer and consider that it's a means that God might wish to use to, does wish to use to grow you in your 
relationship with him and with Christ. So, the sign and seal of the covenant and the spiritual blessing is promised by it. You don't have to be baptized with water in order to be justified. Groups like the uh, Churches of Christ that say you must be baptized to be saved, um, it's another gospel. It's a false gospel. You do not need water to be justified, to be pardoned, and to be declared righteous. This is evident, by the way, from the fact, from the experience of the thief on the cross. It's also evident from Acts 10, uh, 43 through 48, in which Cornelius' household received the gospel and believed, and then only afterwards were they baptized. They were already Christians. They were already forgiven. The text says so. So we don't have to be baptized with water to be saved, uh, but it is an act of, very much an act of Christian obedience to be baptized. Now, what about verse 38? Uh, again, people will say, well, look, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There it is. You don't get forgiven unless you get baptized. That's uh, what the false uh, gospel teaches. What's, what are ways that you and I, rejecting that view, can understand this that makes sense of it, that doesn't do violence to the text? There are two possible ways for uh, us to understand this text rightly. And I'm not sure which one is correct, and maybe they both are. I suspect they both are, actually. The first is this. The Greek word that is translated as for in verse 38, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That Greek word in many translations, that's found in many translations, would be better understood to mean and translated as in reference to. In reference to the forgiveness. So be baptized in reference to the forgiveness of your sins. Because baptism points to the cleansing from sin. It, it's, uh, it refers to, uh, it signifies actually cleansing from sin. Which brings about forgiveness. So that text, uh, that word for there, is, uh, and it's a legitimate translation of the Greek word behind it. Uh, uh, if you put in reference to you understand that it's not saying it gets you forgiven. That's one possibility and probably uh, uh, part of it. And then the other thing is, it is to be can be understood and should be understood, and, and this very much is, uh, I think, uh, what is going on here too, as sacramental language. Now, that's a fancy term that theologians use. But what sacramental language is, is when a sign or the sign of, uh, in, uh, in the Lord's Supper, when, uh, or excuse me, the baptism or the Lord's Supper, when the sign is spoken of in the Bible as if it were the thing that the sign signifies. So, the sign is the water, it signifies forgiveness or cleansing, and the sign is spoken of as if it is the cleansing. Okay, but the sign actually only signifies the cleansing, but the biblical writers sometimes speak of the sign as if it is the cleansing, or, or speak of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the wine in communion as the blood. Right? Jesus said, that, and he said, Jesus said, this is my body, when he held up the bread in, that night. He was holding up bread. 
The bread was not his body. The body was holding the bread, but the bread was not his body. But he was, he was using sacramental language. This is my body given for you. You see the point. That's how we understand Acts 2.38, not the way that heretical view uh, espouses. So, since baptism is the New Testament sign and seal of the one covenant of grace, particularly its New Testament administration, it is both appropriate and necessary that those who have become uh, believers to receive the sign and seal of that same covenant, which is baptism. So if you're a believer, you know yourself to be, and you're not baptized, get baptized. It's commanded that you get baptized by God himself right here in Acts 2.38 and elsewhere. Second point, and this is uh, considerably shorter. So the first point is because the Abrahamic and New Covenants are essentially the same covenant, you need to get baptized if you're a Christian. But secondly, because the Abrahamic and New Covenants are essentially the same covenant, you need to have your children baptized if you are a Christian. Now Adam is going to be coming uh, as a professing Christian uh, when he gets baptized here. But I'm speaking more broadly than just the way Adam is coming as a professing Christian, he's, he's uh, becoming a communicant member, actually, of, of the church and getting baptized here. Um, uh, but uh, I'm speaking more broadly than just children who are older and are able to profess their faith. We need to have our children of all ages <clears throat> baptized. <clears throat> what is the reason that you and I must have our children baptized? Well, first, God promised Abraham that he would be a God to him and to his descendants, his children, forever, by the way, the text says. Genesis, I'll, I'll read it to you, Genesis seventeen seven. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. There it is, you and your seed, you and your children after you throughout their generations for an everlasting everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That promise that was given by God to Abraham is reiterated here in Acts 2.39 by Peter and he inserts it as a promise of the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. Again, for the promise is for you and your children slash descendants. It's, uh, uh, the Greek word technon there is just translated children. It can be just as easily translated descendants. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Peter is affirming, God through him is affirming, that the eternal promise that he made to Abraham is still valid. It is still valid. And it's a truth, by the way, that Abraham's Jewish audience of Christ killers desperately needed to hear who were standing in front of him at this very moment as he's preaching. Because what Peter was saying is, you folks who killed the Messiah, God is still willing to be your God. 
He is still willing to be your God and to have you as His people. As, as His covenant-keeping people. Despite the fact that you were responsible for killing the very messenger of the covenant himself. Just as importantly, Peter is not only affirming that the eternal promise that God made to Abraham is valid, is valid, still valid, but he's affirming that this promise is still valid for the same categories of people who were originally embraced by it. Believers from all nations. That's particularly the emphasis in the New Covenant administration and their descendants and their children. The covenant is still valid for both categories. The covenant didn't change. The parties didn't change. Or the covenant changed. Since all of Abraham's children received the sign and seal of the covenant that God made with him, the covenant administration, I'll call it, of the one covenant of grace, all, since all of Abraham's children were included and received the sign, our children should receive the sign of the covenant that God has made with us and our children. Given the fact that, again, both covenants are essentially the same. Why is this so important? Why am I up here expending so much breath on this topic? It's important because... Uh, and why, why is baptism and baptizing our children, regardless of their age, why is that important? Because... It acknowledges that the child who is baptized, like his parent or parents, depending on if it's just one parent who's believing or both, the child who is baptized, like his parents, is a member of the visible church. The community in which the covenant of grace in its New Testament expression is being worked out. This is the covenant community. The visible church is. And as as a member of that community and as as one who participates in that covenant that is essentially the same as the one made with Abraham, the child is entitled to the church's pastoral oversight, its instruction, its discipline, and is entitled to be referred to as a member of the church, albeit a non-communing member who's not old enough to take communion. Now, Adam will be, because he's able to profess his faith. But otherwise, they're, they're not part of the church. If they're not in the covenant, they're not part of the church. They're still out in the cold. And that's not biblical. It's just not biblical. Jesus said unto the children, let them come unto me. And they were babies, actually. Luke makes, in his version of that uh, uh, account of that, uh, that event, refers to them as little infants. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, if we baptize infants, which we do, uh, we're not doing that today, but it doesn't mean that baptized infants are regenerated. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that they're not regenerated, however. <clears throat> we are not to assume that our baptized little children uh, are are regenerate, but we are not to assume that they are not regenerate. Paul the Baptist was clearly regenerate when he was in his mother's womb, when he leapt for joy at the sight of uh, Jesus or at the nearness of Jesus when Mary approached Elizabeth. He was he was regenerate. No, we are not to assume one way or the other whether or not they're regenerate, whether or not they have a new heart. But we are to treat 
our covenant children, all of them, as true children of God, as as children who are in the covenant, who are in the church and belong in the church. And we are to keep treating them as if they are believers. We can treat them that way. Not assume they are, but treat them that way. Unless and until our child denies Christ by his words or by his actions, at which point, at which point uh, we do not treat them as believers anymore. We treat them as unbelievers because they've indicated they are. This is the biblical way to view our children. Baptism is a means that God uses to remind those of us who have been baptized, even if we were baptized as infants, uh, as we grow up and uh, get older and even into our adult years and our, our, our golden years, God uses baptism to remind us of the solemn obligation that we personally have to repent of our sins and trust Christ or keep repenting of our sins and trusting Christ if we've already done so. Um, we need to do this. As uh, the baptism says, you can't walk away. God, Jesus is saying, you can't walk away from me. You are mine. I'm, you're in covenant with me and you can't live that life of sinfulness that part of you wants to live. Because you're mine. And baptism helps remind us of that, that we have his mark of ownership on us. And we're and so we can't um, we can't forsake our God. Certainly not with horrible ramifications. Without horrible ramifications, I should say. It's something, by the way, that you parents should regularly mind, uh, remind your younger children, your children of, regardless of their age, actually. You were baptized, sweetie, or honey, you know, son. You were baptized. You can't live that way. You can't, you can't act like that. You can't beat up neighborhood children like you just did, or whatever, you know, sin <laughs> we're talking about. Well, I, you know, I just, that's what came to mind. <laughs> You, you, you belong to Jesus. You're in covenant with him. You have his mark on you. You can't live that way. And it's something that you children, as you grow up, need to be reminding yourself of too. When you're in school and you're tempted, uh, or you're with other teenagers and you're tempted by them to do things you shouldn't do, uh, to renounce your faith because they say, ah, oh, evolution has proved the Bible's wrong, or whatever they say. You're going you're gonna to hear stuff and you're going to be tempted sorely by the world to to change what you believe. And your baptism says, no, you can't do that. I said you can't do that. And I said it in your baptism. It's a means that we can use to grow on grace as those who are uh, believers. Um, and it also is a reminder to you parents <clears throat> of small children who bring your children uh, that's not happening today, but who bring your children uh, to be baptized before they can make a public, public profession of your duty to train your child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Amen. Baptism is just a sign and a seal, not just. It's a sign and a seal and a means of grace. But what it points to, which is what we all need, is new hearts. Cleansing. 
from the waters that flow from the cross of Christ. Do you belong to Jesus today? You need to come to Christ if you don't. You need him to forgive you of your sins and to, through him and his righteousness applied to you, have that declaration from heaven that you are innocent, that you are in fact righteous in God's sight because he sees Jesus' righteousness in you. But you only get that if you trust in Jesus alone to save you. If you haven't done that, please, I beg you, do so today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these gospel truths. We thank you for the sacraments, which are means of saving and sanctifying grace uh, to, uh, to your people, to your elect. We ask, Lord, that um, you would help us to understand uh, more fully the covenant and uh, these, uh, the signs of the covenant, uh, which are uh, the sacraments. And we pray that you would uh, use our baptism to remind us of our commitment that we ourselves have made to you if we are baptized, that we are, must live differently. We must submit to you um, as our Lord and obey your commandments because that's what believers do. That's what baptized members of the covenant do. Help us to serve you and to do it joyfully. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Parents, please come forward. If your parents want to come, I assume they do. And siblings. Stay right there. That's fine. Um, we have two wonderful privileges uh, today. Um, Steve Mosley, I've known Steve for 26 years. And um, Steve is, uh, has, has become a wonderful friend over the years. And uh, he is... Uh, transferring his membership uh, to our church today. Uh, actually, he already said his vows in a very informal session meeting that we had a few days ago on Wednesday, actually. <laughs> very informal. Was, we are standing in the foyer right there, <laughs> uh, essentially. Um, actually, wait, no, he didn't, no, he didn't say his vows. Anyway, never mind. I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't get into the details. He said them years ago, yes. That's... Yeah, he, yes. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. But anyway, he's transferring back in <laughs> to our church, and we are very, very glad of it. So he is uh, coming, uh, becoming a member by uh, transfer, and um, Adam is because he's already a member of our church. He's a non-communicating, a non-communicant member. That is, he hasn't been taking communion uh, up to this point in time. But he is going to become a communicant member today when he takes his membership vows. Uh, both these gentlemen uh, we know to be Christians and we have heard their professions of faith, the session has, and uh, they are both going to take their membership vows now together. And uh, then I'm going to baptize Adam because Adam hasn't been baptized yet. And so we're going to baptize him, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I'm going to read these vows, and if you would please um, 
uh, well, tell me what you what your answer is. I'm assuming it will be yes. Uh, but uh, there are five vows here, and I'll read them aloud and one at a time. And at the end of each one, if you would please say yes, if that's what is in fact your intention. So number one, do you both acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? Do you both believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone as he is offered in the gospel? Thirdly, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Fourth, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And then finally, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Amen. Amen. It's wonderful. Whoops, I shouldn't have closed that. Now, would you step over here, please? All right. As I already waxed eloquent, um, Adam is a covenant child, uh, but he uh, is now going to actually receive the covenant sign of baptism, a mark of Christ's ownership of you. And I'm going to put a little bit of water on you, hopefully not too much. Mr. Craig said not too much. Uh, I'm going to baptize you, all right? Adam, what's your middle name? I forgot your middle Scott. name. That's right. I knew that. Adam Scott, hey, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> here, here. Here, you use that, all right? Okay, you can step back over there. And we're so glad the whole family is able to be here uh, and join us for this happy occasion. So, amen. Let's, let's all pray together. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for uh, that you, Lord Jesus, are the head of your church and you are growing your church, Lord. We rejoice that uh, the gates of hell cannot uh, withstand uh, your power in bringing in your elect from around the, the four corners of the world. We thank you that... Um, you are growing this church, and by, by uh, uh, through covenant children, through transfers from other churches, and through conversions. And we are most grateful for the way that you have done this. We ask your blessing upon these two individuals in particular right now, uh, for Steve, for Adam. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, bless them as they are a part of our fellowship, that you would uh, minister to them and grow them uh, further in uh, grace and in maturity, uh, we ask that you would uh, help us to minister to them, not just the elders, uh, but all of us to minister to them and to serve them and love them and, and, and um, build them up through our words and conversations. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, just uh, 
use them mightily in coming days. And we pray that you would use them to minister to us as well as a congregation, that they would use increasingly their gifts that you have given to them and their talents uh, for the betterment of your people and your kingdom. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you all.